Almost. 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 Major. 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 Holy fucking shit, this is major! Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Almost Major, where we talk about the many major studios and the films they released. Today uh, we are on our I Don't Know the Episode Number and I'm Quitting Counting of our 1980s New Line miniseries. My name is Kevin Tudor. I'm here with Bryden Nash. Bryden Nash! I am tired! Wow! Bryden Doyle. Hello. Kevin put us, uh, you put us in the um, the telepods in the fly and now we're just sitting <laughs> in one body. We're going in the land down under and when we do that, we switch our names around. That's what happens. Yeah. That's true. Bryden Nash is just somebody who, uh, it's a it's a Boston accent, but you say A at the end of it. That's right. Um, that's my joke. Um, and Charlie Nash. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Charlie Noyce. Um, and today we are talking about Heat Wave from 1982. This released in March 8th, 1982 in Australia. Screened at Cannes in May 1982 and released on June 10th, 1983 in the U.S. And I don't know how much it made in the U.S. or how much theaters it went to. Um, do you know? I, well, I know the budget. Uh, it was like uh, $1 million, I think is what Noyce said in one of these interviews that I was reading. Uh, but he said yes. like it didn't the, the word on this is that it did not do very well uh, in Australia and like actually like send him into like making TV films and TV miniseries for like the next few years until we did um uh, Dead Calm Dead and Calm. Blind Fury. That was kind of like his yeah. big comeback to big, the big time uh, and going into Hollywood, especially. Um, that was like 10 yeah. years th- later, right? Like uh, <laughs> Dead Calm is 1989 and Blind Fury is 1989. He says like he made like Dead Calm. He'd like just finished editing it in Australia went over to America to make Blind Theory, then went back uh, to Australia to, like, you know, fiddle with Deadcom and, like, you know, post-production and whatnot, and then, like, both movies came out, like, that that same year, I think is what happened. Um, God damn. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did find uh, it was on Wikipedia with no source, so grain of salt, but it made $267,000 in Australia, which, I mean, yeah, that's, that's not that good, but couldn't confirm that. But, yeah, I found the... He said, like, around $1 million, so, yeah. Which, that's not, it's not that bad, you know? It, you didn't get that much money, but for $1 million, that's not the not the worst-looking picture. But I also don't know the conversion between Australia and U.S. money, but... I don't understand um, numbers. I, yeah, fuck <laughs> yeah. no, I don't. Yeah. Um, top five films that weekend is Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, Octopussy, Trading Places, Psycho 2, and War Games. You got three sequels there. What is this? It's fucking 2023? What's going on here? Psycho 2, which the sequel, directed by Anthony Perkins, who directed Lucky Stiff, which we'll be covering next week. Who did Psycho 2? It's uh, Richard Franklin, I think, who did that movie Road, Game, which, Road Games, which I've heard is oh, really yeah. good. Um, yeah, yeah, I have heard that's Psycho really good. Psycho 2 is good. Psycho 2 is good. I've never yeah, seen so. Psycho 2. Yeah. Return of the Jedi is one of those movies that's like, it's a five-star movie in my heart, and I know it's not perfect, but you, you can't tell me that that movie isn't special to me. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> you need to watch War Games. Matthew Broderick I haven't seen War Games. I have yeah. seen it yeah. so long ago. Um, yeah. 
Um, I probably did not understand any of the politics uh, that was going on about like you know nuclear war. <laughs> when I was, war, like, boo, nine. games, yay! <laughs> oh my god, Kevin! I was in a grocery store the other day and I heard some ad that was like, "The pandemic is over, yay!" But COVID is here to stay. Boo! And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a little tone deaf. I think we're that's still, good. But we're still, here to stay. Uh, that's bad. But it's like we're do- we're already to that type of like thing where I was just like guys like <laughs> covid killed millions boo but it didn't kill my desire to travel across the country yay She's yeah, like, yeah like also that's like you know the grocery store is a place where people have to go you know like yeah. it doesn't matter what like remember several years where if this much people were in this convenience store we'd all be maybe get covid and die that doesn't happen anymore Kind of. <laughs> yeah, people are still dying. I mean, like, Jesus. Now yeah. it's a topic that I don't even want to get onto, but... <laughs> uh, excuse me, I'm trying to talk about Flashdance. Uh, number one song in the U.S. this week is Flashdance, dot, 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 What a Feeling, by Irene Cara. Number one song in Canada this week is Flashdance, dot, 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 What a Feeling, by Irene Cara. Um, it was number one in the U.S. for, like, eight weeks. Just a song from a song from a movie could just be number one for like eight weeks in the eighties. They were just like, I love this movie still, so much. Right? I, I can imagine. I mean, how long was? I, I can imagine my heart will go on was like that big back in ninety seven. Oh, yeah. I still hear that. I I still hear that in like pharmacies and like sushi restaurants or whatever. <laughs> I'd always want to fall in love at a pharmacy and a sushi restaurant. <laughs> Both places are just like, have you called my doctor yet? You're supposed to call my doctor. Yeah. So what are you in line for? I need a medication that doesn't give me hives. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, but yeah, uh, Flashdance, a uh, bad movie, but that song's kind of cool. I guess. But yeah, I I mean, as far as like people being like, I love the movie so much, I got to get the soundtrack for the movie to remind me about the movie. And then I'll go watch the movie in theaters again. And then because I think at this point, Flashdance was number six this weekend. This was also around. I mean, this wasn't too far off from Purple Rain about to come out where that was the number one movie song and album all at the same time. Goddamn right. Yeah. Um, now I need to see how much Flashdance made, because I'm probably going to be like, really? It was a budget of $7 million, made $201 million. <laughs> yeah, why was what like if a big woman, deal then, I guess? I mean, What if a woman could dance and weld at the same time? Wait, she didn't do it at the same time? This movie sucks. Let's see. Plot description from Google. The architect of a proposed residential complex forges an unlikely alliance with the leader of the project's opponents. Cool. Uh, based on a screenplay by Mark Stiles and Tim Gooding, and the screenplay was eventually written by Mark Rosenberg and Philip Noyce, uh, directed by Philip Noyce, prior to this uh, newsfront in 1978, which was nominated for 14 Australian Film Institute Awards and won two of them. 14! Because I'm sure they were just like, we got one Australian movie, let's just give them all the nominations. Yeah. An important bit of context. I, that's a funny joke, but this is like around the time when like a lot of like the Australian new wave noise talked about this. Oh, like yeah. a lot of those big directors, like French PC, Peter Weir, George Miller, mm-hmm, uh, Julian mm-hmm. Armstrong, are all like coming up and like eventually uh, like breaking out and like many of them going to Hollywood to make like other movies, uh, which is which is really cool uh, to to think about um, them like mm-hmm. having those uh, small beginnings and then uh, breaking out. Um, yeah, and it's funny also how like some of those directors are like still kicking around like George Miller now, but like um, but like some of them are just like uh, I don't know, they're kind of quiet. Like Peter Weir has not made a movie in forever, uh, and Noyce uh, is kind of about to pass her now, but 
we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, yeah. Julian Armstrong, we will talk about because uh, Judy Davis is in My Brilliant Career in 1979. Um, but after this, Dead Calm and Blind Fury in 1989, Patriots Games in uh, 1992, Clear and Present Danger in 1994, Bone Collector in 1999. Hell yeah, that movie fucking sucks. Rabbit Proof Fence and The Quiet American in 2002. He loves doubling up on years. Jesus. Yeah. He's like, like the Australian Soderbergh. Uh, Salt in 2010. The Giver in 2014. Uh, Charlie, you told me to watch this, but I just didn't get around to I, it. They said um, no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> the Desperate Hour in 2021. The movie where Naomi Watts tries to stop a school shooting. And uh, just this past week, he came out with Fast Charlie with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chris Brosnan. Yeah. It's also, I think, the last movie with James Caan is what I heard, too. Um, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, he has three movies in pre-production right now. The noise don't stop. That's right. Somehow I have seen none of his movies except for two in the past ten. Two of his more recent efforts, Salt and The Giver, and I can't tell you anything that happens in either of them. <laughs> like, just just The Giver, I remember looked like shit. Salt, I remember the advertising campaign because it was, who is Salt? And it was who just a close-up of Angelina Jolie's face. It's like... <laughs> just shrouded in darkness. Yeah, like it's shrouded just in darkness. I saw that stoned at a drive-in. Can't tell you what happens in it. The Giver, I... I, I I don't know why I saw that. <laughs> I get, I know for a fact it's somewhere on my Facebook page. I gave the Gifford three stars out of four at the time. It's probably not a three-star movie. <laughs> That's why we gotta get rid of Facebook. Shouldn't be allowed to look at that. Um, the only one I saw before this was The Bone Collector, which, like I said, dude, fucking sucks. Um, I did watch Sliver, and I've uh, not saying I bought the Blu-ray while we've been talking on Amazon for like ten dollars, but you know Are what? You I need to have serious? it. Sorry. I need to have it. That's too aggressive. <laughs> I don't know, but I come need on. to have it. It's you know what? For I'm a second, I thought you were going to say that's too aggressive to buy that movie on Amazon, Braden. <laughs> no, my tone was too aggressive, is what I meant. Uh, um, I've run out of good movies to buy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Judy Davis says Kate Dean. Uh, prior to this, my brilliant career in 1979. After this, a passage to India in 1984, which she was nominated for a leading Oscar. Uh, Barton Fink and Naked Lunch in 1991, along with four other movies. This was like her big breakout. Love year. Judy Davis. Nobody else is in this movie, though, right? It was just Judy uh, Davis. There's like three other people, but I couldn't even be like prior and after this because they're, they're, it's like all Australian movies that are very, I've never heard of. Well, one Besides of the like guys. Bill Hunter. One of the guys is, um, he. I just saw him in that uh, Russell Mulcahy movie, Razorback, about the killer boar. I think he's uh, like. Yeah. It's what? uh, yeah. It's <laughs> I didn't know this existed. <laughs> Chris Haywood, who plays uh, Houseman, the guy who like ends up like fleeing the country at the end of the movie. He oh, plays okay. like one of like the creepy Australian guys who's like harassing like the female lead at the start of that movie, and then like you know ends up getting, uh, his comeuppance at the hands of the boar uh, at the end of the movie. Razorback, gorgeous looking movie. It is goofy, but uh, but it is it's it's quite good. Um, yeah, I need to watch it. Apparently, there's a movie this year also about like in a very aggressive uh, fucking uh, camel. I'm just like that can't be scary. I bet Ishtar. Did they remake Ishtar into a horror movie? I think I think they did. <laughs> Uh, Have you ever seen Ishtar? Where the the, the gag where it, it's so funny. They there's like Isabella Johnny gives um, 
I, it's either Warren Beatty or Dustin Hoffman. I don't remember which. Like, tell this person that you need a blind camel is like a code for like you know getting in on a secret. But they just sell him a blind camel, and the camel just ends up like running into all of the background extras while they're talking. It's just the funniest shit. Or I was like, people hated this back then. This is amazing. Like, <laughs> I do need to see that movie. I you. <laughs> Shared in one of our group chats recently the the clip I think from Animaniacs where it's like this dinosaur's chased us we need to drop a yeah. bomb, on, bomb on him and they just drop like copies of Ishtar and Heaven's <laughs> Gate on it <laughs> which are really funny especially considering it was the nineties and a part of me is like okay that's funny but oh <laughs> it's a good bit of like just fun wordplay you know I, yeah. I like that yeah. it's also cultural humor in terms of like how those movies were valued back then you know yeah <laughs> also jokes like, not for the people that are not for the children that are watching the show whatsoever. <laughs> Just for like the adults that come in and like, yeah, that's kind of funny. I found prints. No, 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 yeah. fingerprints. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna. Do I don't that. think yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was looking it up because Mary Beth recently watched this. It's called Naga. N A G A. It's a Saudi Arabian movie, but yes, it is about oh. a vicious killer camel. It's on Netflix. I want to see that. One of the top reviews said, "Really thought this was gonna be this girl fighting a vicious killer camel for two hours, and that's not what I got. So I'm a little disappointed, but this is still a good use of my time. <laughs> fighting off oh. a camel is just, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, not, not as vicious as we want." Can I say one other thing uh, that's uh, yeah. that will actually be kind of interesting uh, as like a connection to other New Line stuff with Philip Noyce is. Um, he talked about like how Dead Calm was like you know kind of like a movie that got like some attention, but he also said this is from a, a film comment interview with Jim Jim Emerson from back in the nineties around uh-huh. uh, the time of Patriot Games coming out. He said um, that Noise thinks it was his TV pilot for Wes Craven's Nightmare Cafe horror fantasy series that landed him the Patriot Games gig, and because he, he says I assume that since the Nightmare Cafe pilot is the last thing Brandon Tartikoff, who was the NBC president from nineteen eighty one to nineteen ninety seven nineteen ninety one. Soon that was the last thing he looked at at NBC, and Patriot Games is the first thing he put into production at Paramount. There had to be some connection. So it's just kind of cool how we kind of like, I mean, I feel like there have been a couple of other movies where like we've talked about, it's like, oh, there's a connection to the Nightmare series with like New Line and everything. So I just thought that was oh, yeah. kind of cool to bring up. Patriot Games yeah. is Jack Ryan too, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I somehow have the one father in America who never watched those movies or introduced me to them, <laughs> but I feel like <laughs> they are total dad movies, right? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. And my dad watched, um, even though he said like, as it went on, like he didn't really like it. He kept watching the Jack Ryan Amazon show that John Krasinski was in. Uh, like I say, like, Oh, is it good? And he's like, uh, like, but like, he'd like keep watching it anyway on his iPad because there was just like, I don't know, it's just something to pass the time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot all about Nightmare Cafe, but it also has Robert England for all six episodes of it. <laughs> it was only six episodes? Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I might have to, I have to track this down. Um, see if Wait, I question. Was it a miniseries or was it like a, a like meant to be a big multi season thing? Uh, I'm, I'm sure it meant to be a. Oh, it stopped filming due to due to the writer strike, and it never got back into production. Uh, oh, well, okay. So. Well, that's like a valid reason. Uh. Um, the other trivia about this show is that a poster for the series appears in a scene on the wall in Seinfeld season four, episode four, of The Ticket. Cool. <laughs> love to love to only be known for being like, hey, yeah. <laughs> um, who else do we got here? Oh, we still got still got the rest of Judy Davis at. Let's see. Uh, Husbands and Wives, 1992, nominated for supporting Oscar. Marie Antoinette in 2006, and The Dressmaker in 2015. We also got uh, Richard Moore as Stephen West, uh, Christian or Chris Haywood as you were saying, Bryden, and Bill Hunter. 
Trivia. This movie was inspired by the real-life disappearance of Junita Nelson and her campaign against high-rise developments in King's Cross, Sydney. And the film was originally titled King's Cross, where it was originally a screenplay by the aforementioned Mark Stiles and Tim Gooding. Um, speaking about this film, 25 years later, Noyce stated, quote, I'd have, no, I'd have no doubt shot it differently, told the story differently today. Maybe that's because I'm, a more, maybe because I'm more conservative. I might have made the connections between the conspirators more certain rather than implied. Heat Waves belongs to a different era of Australian cinema, a time where we took a lot of risks. I guess that comes with youth, the youth of the director and the youth of that second new wave of filmmakers. It was a time when there was a love affair between audiences and Australian cinema, something which these days is rather on and off. Yeah, and the the real case never got solved. Like uh, the people who were like um, who were charged with like a conspiracy to kidnap, uh, they did serve time in prison, uh, but like they're all, they've all passed away, and like none of them like gave any answers, including the last person who like saw Juanita Nielsen before she died or before she disappeared. I think like in '83 they like assumed that she was dead, but like in 2021, uh, there was a uh, an article from the the mirror that said like that there was uh, the New South Wales police offered an enormous reward of one million dollars. Uh, Australian dollars for information that would help solve the mystery of what happened to her because her family like is still like there are still members of her family that like want to know what happened uh, which is really really sad yeah uh do you have any more trivia that you were finding with noise interviews or anything I mean it was nice to hear him like talk about like other Australian filmmakers he said um uh like talking about like Australian cinema which listen I've seen like a lot of movies by Australia I've seen a handful of movies by Australian filmmakers but I feel like that era of movies when they're making movies in their home country that's like something I'm a little spottier on I want to look I want to catch up with it someday but he talked about he said well he talked about Newsfront which like you said was like his big breakout it was coming to terms Noyce said uh it was coming to terms with the Australian experience what it meant to live in Australia which was so much a concern of the early new wave of Australian films having been denied an opportunity to examine our past on screen we spent almost 10 years doing that before we made any significant cont- contemporary films if you noticed now all the films coming out of there are contemporary you know he you know he says he was brought up on Westerns and English historical movies and being fed other people's history, you know, that's like what motivated them to like, you know, dig into their own history of their country. And then he says, now Jane Campion, uh, who did Sweetie and Angel at My Table at the time, and Jocelyn Warhez, who did Proof, they're making almost exclusively contemporary films. They're also, they're probably also able to do that because us guys have shifted aside and allowed them an opportunity to spend what little funds are available there, which I think is interesting. He makes a point about them making contemporary movies because I know Campion and Warhouse would alternate in making historical historical and contemporary movies. You know, Jane Campion did, like, por- The Portrait of a Lady and uh, Bright Star and Power of the Dog and Morehouse did... I think Dressmaker is, like, a Western or something, like, or set, like, many years ago. Even The Piano with Jane Campion. It, that, that comes out the year after this, it, he does this interview with Film Comments. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that they alternate between that. It's also yeah. funny to just, like... I was thinking about, like, what big Australian directors are around now, like, that are kind of, like, seen as big representatives of their country. And I, like... I don't know if there are other answers you were thinking. I mean, like I said, some of the directors who are part of this new wave are still around, like, you know, George Miller. Uh, and, like, some of them are still alive, like Peter Weir, but they just don't make movies anymore. Like, I guess, like, Justin Kurzel, who did, like, Macbeth and uh, Nit Ram and Assassin's Creed, he's one, I guess. John Hillco, although he does... Look- did he do the Snowtown murder? Yes, I remember that was that his first movie, I think. Good. And his yeah. brother's a composer, That too. movie's pretty fucked up. Yeah, I've heard his yeah. movies are... I mean, I want to say some of his movies, but they all sound just really unpleasant. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely not. Yeah, the Snowtown Murders is definitely. I was like, oh, I'm glad I saw that. We'll never watch that again, probably. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, that's that's what I feel bad about is all the Australian movies I've been thinking of, like Greg McLean, who did Wolf Creek, and then there was, um, what was the one, The Hounds of Love or something that's, that came uh, out like what's that guy's name? years ago. Ben Young, I think, is who did that. Who's And he's yeah. remaking, I saw, the Curtis Hansen movie, The Bedroom Window, which is interesting, I saw, which is one of Hansen's mm. lesser movies, So it is, but it's like kind of a good premise, so it's, like, it's ideal for a remake. Whether or not he's the guy to do it, we'll see. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned Greg McLean. I, I mean, you do get like a lot of horror movies coming out of out of Australia now, like you know, Lee Winnell and James Wan, of the course. Loved ones. Uh, Talk to me was like a big breakout this loved year. Ones? Sorry, I, I'm talking over you, Charlie. What would you say? Uh, what? No, no, no. I'm talking over you. No, I forgot. Talk to me was Australian, although I didn't care for that one. Um, but Royal Hotel was the Loved Ones Australia. Royal Hotel. Well, that was Kitty. Kitty Green's a Canadian. Yeah, no. but it's, she's Australian, Australia. isn't she? Oh, is she? Oh, I thought it was. No, wait. Fuck. Maybe I'm just getting it confused because she's really from Melbourne. She's Australian. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, she's made movies set in America, like you know, Assistant. Of course, is like very. I mean, we, it was funny the prop that was going around today about like movies that you think about like uh, best movies about America that are not directed by Americans. Uh, that is a movie. I don't know if I'd say that's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I like that movie, but it's that is a notable example. It's a very New York movie yeah. set directed by an Australian. Um, yeah. I, th- I just think I've watched a lot of contemporary Aussie horror, if that's what you the term is. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the terms that, that, that like is talked about, like, I think around the time that like these um, this Australian new wave is talking about is like exploitation, like, you know, horror movies like set in Australia and everything. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that, I, I don't know if I'm like correct in saying that this would fit into it, but Razorback has basically just been like, this is a bad man. Australia looks really bad in this movie. Like everyone looks like feral and the, the board is like tearing this town apart. But uh, yeah. Does the loved ones hold up? I remember liking that one. I, I didn't since it came out. I didn't love it when I watched it, but uh, you know, it's, I might've just not it been in the mood. Some, it gets, a, it goes to some pretty wild places. I remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Hasn't the director of that, like not done anything since or something like that? He did, he got- did one movie called the devil's candy. That's what I never saw. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I've always wanted to rewatch the loved ones. Cause I really liked it in like 2011 when I watched it, but yeah, yeah. same. I, I haven't seen it since I was in college and remember being like, wow, this thing is uh more hardcore than I thought it would be based on, you know, the poster and the ads and whatnot, even though she's got a fucking power drill in it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I will also mention one director who kind of stick. We're talking about like a lot of Australian movies, Australian directors who make very intense or very bleak movies. Uh, one person who kind of like counterbalances that by, uh, uh, by be- making very uh, upbeat and uh, enter- very outwardly entertaining movies is Baz Luhrmann, who makes like movies that are very much not in that, uh, that are very stylized and very like in your face with like the, uh, very uh, peppy energy. Yeah, I no that's thanks. a good thing. Wolf Creek. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's very, very much. Uh, I mean, you got like the Gillian Armstrongs, but most of them are like really gritty, and it's just like, what do you? I mean, what do you expect from motherfuckers that wake up and like kangaroos are like fist fighting in the streets when they're trying to go to work? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they live in the future. <laughs> <laughs> It's the hottest summer on record. Emotions can run high. From the director of internationally acclaimed Newsfront, an explosive new motion picture. Award-winning Judy Davis is the rebellious Kate Dean. Richard Moyer is ambitious architect Steve West, Eden. 
a $200 million dream turned nightmare in a city whose ruthless forces deal brutally with those who challenge it. This is the same woman that's trying to destroy you and the project and everything we work for. But being caught in bed with a bomb-throwing terrorist does not do good, our son. Philip, I want her out. I am not going to give up. And I'm not afraid. Every city has its dreamers. Every city has its victims. This city had a heat wave. Uh, initial thoughts. Brighton, initial thoughts on heat wave. I thought this was okay. You know, Noise, I feel like, has like a. I, I, th- I feel like going into this, I knew his rep was kind of like, you know, a journeyman, especially like with this Hollywood stuff, you know, like movies that are like, you know, competently directed, like Patriot Games, but like maybe don't stick out necessarily. Although I was reading that film comment interview, it was interesting, like his, uh, where he was trying to give like more of a political read on it and like talk about how it compared to some of his other political movies and like trying to meld those political interests with entertaining, like, you know, uh, accessible entertainment values. I, I think the, what I was surprised by was this movie. I think the script and the performances are kind of uneven, uh, but the, the direction is the thing that like really kept me on my toes throughout the whole thing is um, I found like, I really liked the, the score and sound design i felt like there's always like kind of just like a whether it's like kind of like the the faint sort of ominous like din of like the score where it's like sort of like the the guitars and they're sort of like like lightly riffing and also like kind of the high-pitched like keyboards like and there's all uh there's often like sort of like that music playing throughout the movie like just very faintly or like sometimes very overtly but there's also like often like people like chattering in the background and sometimes it'll be like really overwhelming then there are other scenes where like the camera is like doing like really active things that like make ordinary actions look look look, look really creepy there's a scene in the strip club where like you've got like all this red lighting and it looks like looks kind of garish already and everything but then like you get the the dancers pov and the camera just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning and every time you cut back to that pov it gets faster and faster and faster until like everyone's like laughing faces look like really maniacal and ghoulish so i really like that he how he's able to like find like pick these like relatively ordinary scenes and find like ways to make them like really unnerving because there is just kind of like i mean the movie opens with like you know scenes of like people like acting out violently with like you know the the guys in the sledgehammers who are like you know breaking into people's homes to kick them out so the movie's like that violence is already baked into the film like from the beginning but there is like just this like ominous like sense of threat that like pervades the whole movie especially like with like the heat where everyone looks like super sweaty and like is really stressed out noise i think is like really good at like you know suggesting dread without necessarily moving into violence like the suggesting of violence without actually showing it um the scene that where the the reporter mary like initially goes missing uh, where like you're just like in her house and everything like you're like looking at newspaper clippings and it seems like an innocuous scene at first and everything but then you hear judy davis calling her name repeatedly and you start to hear like the sound of like buzzing flies and you start seeing smoke uh in like the in the room when like you know when she goes into the into the kitchen when Judy davis goes into the kitchen like the, the the oven is on and you don't see anything violent but you just get the sense like something really bad happened here and the fact that you don't know it is like keeps you on edge. And it reminded me a lot of the scene in Dead Calm, which I would recommend to anyone who's listening to it, even though it does have some really upsetting uh, sexual violence in the movie. It is a, it is a, an excellently directed thriller. There's a scene in that movie where Sam Neill goes aboard a boat that has been abandoned uh, where the crew has died. And uh, he like you know the boat is like flooded and like the power's not working so it's all shadowy and it's on like a tilted angle and there's like this video that's like it was like a pleasure cruise and everything and you and you hear like the sound of like the video where like you know people's like are like laughing like you know 
sort of like having fun on the tape at first and everything. But then as like the, the tape keeps playing in the background, you start to hear the audio just get more and more distressed as, as like you get this implication of something really horrible happening on this boat before we arrived on it in the film. And you see like just like blood writ- like smeared on like the TV and everything. And like without and that movie does get more explicit with the violent images it shows, especially what happened on that boat later on. And but just like he's really good at like, you know, that level of suggestion to create a sense of unease. That being said, it, it, it does like his direction does make up for the movie. I think not being especially engaging on a character level. I feel like the movie is like very didactic, not only politically, which is not a problem, but didactic in a character level. And I feel like that's like doing the work that's like covering up for how thinly written the characters are. I mean, the relationship where like, you know, Judy Davis and um, Richard Moyer are like, you know, diametrically opposed politically, but they end up getting together. I feel like that, that only, is like the, the the movie really only the movie's way of trying to convince you of that is just by having them say it in the dialogue where like Judy Davis practically says something like we're not so different you and I um, that was my Australian accent um, but um, and it's really not convincing and I think Davis is like quite good in the movie there's a scene where um, where uh, she says uh, she, she says like when she's talking about how like they won't uh, let the developers go she's like because we let, we won't let you mate and the way she like you know throws that word back at richard moyer like and like so smirkily and like you know with like such but like it's with such defiance it's like really good like you and I, I like her character in that moment from that moment uh and moyer meanwhile plays every scene just kind of like blankly staring into space and like i get his character's like a passive wimp he doesn't do anything in the movie it's just like i don't think his arc is is very uh is, is conveyed uh, by the writing or by his performance in an interesting way. Yeah, you don't really get to know these characters as people, uh, which I feel like, and look, like, it's the kind of thing where, like, if you know just the, the basic situation of, like, these people live in their houses and they're being kicked out of it, that's, like, on the on that level alone. Like, you, you're sympathetic to the tenants, of course, but, like, you don't really get to know them as people. You don't get to know the person uh, who goes missing and who Judy Davis is searching for. Mary, Mary Ward, I believe, is her name. So it does, like, leave the movie feeling kind of hollow, but I will say... Just atmosphere-wise, I think Noyce does, like, a really good job to convey tension throughout. I found, like, the climax, even though, like, I was a little bit confused about, like, how everyone related to each other. And I will say the movie sometimes is, like, kind of, like, kind of darkly and doesn't quite convey everything clearly in terms of, like, who's in business with who and whatnot. I mean, I guess the whole movie is, like, and the reveal is, like, you know, everyone's kind of in, in, in bed with each other, you know, uh, in terms of doing all these conspiracies and stuff. It's, it's conveyed a little bit confusingly, but, like, the direction where, like, you're running through, like, the, the big crowd and, like, the camera's, like, you know, sort of trying to keep up with them. And then the ending scene where, like, it's, like, creeping along, like, the muddy ground and almost looks kind of like the Evil Dead. Yeah, no, I, I think there's, like, enough striking filmmaking going on here to paper over a lot of the the issues I have. I, I mean, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see how, like, it made, I, 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 it made me appreciate Noyce more as, like, as a director, but the storytelling leaves something to be desired uh, for me. Uh, I, I, t- I feel like I talked a lot about that. Sorry if it was a little confusing, uh, but I want to pass it, it was, pass the it baton was more over to you. Thorough than, it was not confusing at all. If anything, watching the movie was confusing. I was about to say, <laughs> Just... thank God Brian filibustered so that this episode wouldn't be five minutes long. Because <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna be like, I don't know. <laughs> Charlie, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you, Bryden, in that his direction's interesting. Um, in terms of the politics, yeah, like, 
I'm very much like obviously you're not supposed to be on the side of the protagonist who's like <laughs> it's basically just like yeah what's wrong with gentrification like whatever it's just kind of like well I don't want to be spending time with you and I, you know that's and I'm not saying you can't make a movie about that but you're right the characters are so thinly sketched and they're like so what made you want to get into this and he's like I like architecture I went to America and then I did, yeah, I, abandoned my I went practice. to America uh-huh. yeah and it's just like uh-huh okay yeah uh and like you said, like, we don't get to know anybody who's squatting in their house or even why they're having to squat in their house, really. We don't really know what brought them to that position. And that's totally fine to launch us into this movie like that. But, like, good God, apart from Judy Davis, who's an amazing actor, nobody has any personality. I get that it's doing the whole film noir structure of there's been a murder, there's a conspiracy, everyone's dirty you know, double-crossing, all that stuff. It doesn't matter if you can follow the plot as long as the atmosphere's there. And Philip Noyce does a lot with um, slow motion and, you know, using, like, he, he, he keeps using that 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 strategy of, like, using, like, Shutterstock or whatever it is. Isn't that it? Like, it were, I, I was like, okay, once it's fine, but this is, like, a trick that's getting really old really quickly, even during the stuff, like, that, that by the end where you get to, like, the... I kept thinking a blowout at the end where I was like, is this just going to be one big tragedy with this big, you know, Mm -hmm. celebration. And like by the time, but by the time that all of the, you know, that filmmaking is happening, I, you know, again, film noir, it doesn't really matter about the plot as long as you're like engaged with the aesthetics and the aesthetics aren't bad here, but like, I was just so like, completely unengaged from everything going on here just based on the fact that yeah like you said Bryden you know apart from Judy Davis the performances are boring uh like you know it's just not that interesting for me to watch this character who's like I don't see what the big deal is about we want to help these people and make this new entertainment fucking center for men it's just like I I don't know like (laughs) like am I I supposed to like of course I'm gonna be on I I just of course I'm gonna be like on Judy Davis and the squatter side and then like okay we're stuck with him just being naive about how all of this works and oh there are double crosses and whatnot and you can't follow any of them anyway and you know the stuff with you know finding out whatever happened to the missing woman it it didn't even feel focused in like okay what is this movie really about like in terms of like those heavy-handed politics but then you have all the stuff about okay this is based on a real life case of this missing woman it's not really about it's, it's simultaneously about her but it's also about the politics of you know, everything going on in terms of the housing crisis going on here. And nobody, by the time he and Judy Davis are getting together, it's not believable and it's not even steamy or hot or anything like that. Cause I just don't believe that she would want to be involved with him at all, especially considering how boring his character is written and played. And, and by the end I was like, I don't care who's doing what to who I don't, I, I, I was just, you know, I will admit I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on a new sleep schedule. I'm pretty tired. I was tired watching this. I'm not a Philip Noyce person by any means. So I didn't have a lot going into that I was even really looking forward to. But I was expecting something that at least, you know, grip me through this. And I just found it to be kind of a slog. Like, it's not even terribly made. It's totally fine. But, like, I can't recommend this to anybody. Like... Just seems I mean, like a- it's also like a tough movie to recommend in terms of accessibility. Like we had to watch this on like links on like you know sites where movies yeah. just Archive. like are yeah. uploaded by people who are interested in this kind of shit. It's not like a movie you can 
rent i couldn't even rent it on like youtube or whatever like it's yeah no it's just i mean i i'd say if you're curious about philip noise sure I am not one of those people, <laughs> and so I just didn't. If you're curious I, about I noise. It, start with Sliver. If you're still interested, <laughs> twenty movies in, then you can watch Heat Wave, because you, yeah, you still got to go through the Desperate Hour. You still got to go yeah. through the Giver. The the one thing that I did think captured a tone of of melancholy and um, uncertainty and hopelessness was the score i thought the the ambient score was actually pretty haunting at times and was the only thing that kept me trying to snap back into what was going on but yeah like i just found it and again i'm in a weird like mindset and mode we're also recording around the holidays a lot of stuff's going on so i was just kind of like yeah okay gotta watch this for the pot and it just i i just had a hard time like it's not even like anything terrible or egregious or anything like that it's just it was just hard for me to engage with this in any kind of level just not the type of movie that i was like in the mood for at this current time nor like it was just i don't know it just Maybe the, maybe it's because a lot of stuff going on politically right now. It's just like, I don't know. This you're stuck with this protagonist who has to kick these people out. I'm like, let them fucking squat. I don't care. Like, I know that's not the movie's fault. You can make a movie about this stuff, but again, like, just very limited psychology or insight into not just the characters, but any type of like uh, sociological like like commentary as opposed to you know what's going on i don't know yeah i I, I found it very bland and very again the movie's only 85 minutes it's not like this movie's interminable but at the same time it's like there could have been a little more to engage you in some ways other than just also just have to mention that (laughs) every like every other dude in this movie looks the same and sounds the same and are like completely like oh have we seen that character before i think you mentioned this too brad and and kevin like is that someone we saw before i do i care like they're all kind of you know film noir stock characters anyway of delivering exposition in some cases of like this person was seen at this time and then this person when this house burned out it's just kind of like all right so it's all plot based, but then the plot gets so convoluted and then you don't care and whatever. I don't know. Just a big shrug from me. I feel like that's not exactly great criticism or insight on my part, but I was just not feeling this thing at all. So it's it's listen, it's fair. We're, we are human. It, 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 it's happened yeah. to me before where like I try to like, you know, put myself in the position where it's like maybe this isn't what I'm in the mood for, but I just I got to watch it this really thing. is that yeah. thing, too. If I just. I don't know what I was in the mood for, but it wasn't this. So it's just, it's just that. Yeah, yeah, I would not. I mean, I like this movie fine, but it's not like this is a movie that I would say, you know what, Christmas movie, you should watch Heat Wave. One, yeah. Christmas doesn't really factor into it that much. No. Also, bad vibes. It's just like not a fun movie to watch at Christmas. No, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. yeah. Which I'm all for a bad Christmas vibe movie. I mean, I fucking love L for Christ's sakes, but. Yeah, and I just watched The Box recently. Ooh. What, oh, what a what a oh I forgot that was a Christmas movie yeah yeah but that movie's silly that movie has Frank Langella saying I'm with those who control the lightning and shit like that's uh, not this thing I really <laughs> fucking likes that movie although it did I was laughing to myself imagining like like you know 
Catmint saying, like, you know, Frank Langella, James Morrison, it's like, they're the man in the box. (laughs) 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 Also, Cameron Diaz, like, I think she opens the, uh, my friend Keith Ulick and I talk about this, how she, like, opens the door to Frank Frank Langella for, like, the second or third time, and she just, it's a close-up of her face going, like, who are you? (laughs) Or something, it's just, it's just so silly. (laughs) It also has... Funnily enough, I didn't know he was in it, but John Magaro, you know, who's now who I know is in that movie Past Lives. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's the like the long he's basically playing like the seventies equivalent of like the kid in Donnie Durko's like, what if you put in pictures of dead people and demons, crap like that? Like he's just like a long haired teen who's like just an asshole to everyone in the movie. Uh so I thought that was funny. But anyways. Sorry I'm talking about the box. No, no. I mean, Batman Returns is also a movie I watch every Christmas and is, you know, extravagantly, you know, demented as that movie is. That's a bummer of a movie that I watch every Christmas because, look, sometimes the best Christmas movies are sad, but this is just like a, we'll use Christmas as a window dressing prop for everyone should be together with their families. And now these squatters are getting kicked out of their homes. And who's committing domestic terrorism? I don't know. I hope it's the squatters. They fucking deserve to pull that shit. Like, I will say that's just my take <laughs> with with the the Christmas setting. I said it doesn't use it that well, or not that uh, significantly. I will say it's creepy. What talk about the sound design in the movie? How like when the New Year the climax in the movie takes place on New Year's Eve, and you do hear like sort of like all the fireworks, and like you also hear people like in the crowd screaming in the distance and it does like add like even though it is in the context of like a party it does like at that point in the movie where people are turning up dead it is like creepy you're thinking like well is that part of like the party or is like someone like in danger or anything like is something eerie yeah. happening on that's what i felt but i just i i thought i'd mention that uh, it's also a movie that like gets it's not that violent until like the last 20 minutes where it gets pretty grisly and graphic and by that point i was just well, I guess a lot of aftermath is gri- grisly and graphic, but the movie had so lost me even by that point where I was just like, oh, nasty. I, I do not care. <laughs> like, I was like, at one point I was just like, I don't know who that is. And I, I it, it doesn't it doesn't really like where's the weight in any of this? I felt the weight of like, I don't want these people to be homeless. And then everything else that happened after that was like, eh. <laughs> Kevin, what are your thoughts on the movie? Yeah, I have no thoughts. Did y'all know that they made a monk movie? <laughs> I think I did hear about that recently. <laughs> who made that? Like Paramount Plus or something? Um, let's see. That's USA. Who owns USA? Um, yeah, I think it is Paramount Plus. Yeah, I don't know. Probably a lot of like uh, mask jokes in that because he's a germaphobe. Must it's be Peacock. Hilarious. Peacock did it. There we go. Oh, that's right. That's right. Mm. That's right. Just no thoughts. None. No, <laughs> really, I don't. It's the only note I took was this guy looks like Sting or Flea. I think more like Sting, and that's all I put. <laughs> Yeah. I forgot he had a wife. When the wife came back an hour later, I was like, "Oh right, I, I thought that, that was, was an like affair." A shock. Yeah. Well, and she yeah. like hands up. She says like, I mean, she's there and like saying the dark or whatever." Then it cuts to him like reading a letter where she says, "I'm divorcing you," and like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like not part of your passion. <laughs> yeah, I'm not part of your passion. I'm like, he said he likes architecture, but he just seems annoyed and gruntled throughout this thing. That he's just like, I can't build this house. Oh, These people no. won't leave. This guy, yeah. se- and also, this guy seems like a cool hang, honestly. And also, like, the thing that he's mad about is that, like, not that, like, they're building the thing, but, like, that they're build- not building it in the way that he wants to build it. Like, that's the thing yeah. that upsets him. And it's just like, 
dude. Like, <laughs> isn't it? And then there was that. What is it? Enter, an entertainment center for men. And I'm just like, I just imagine that like there are dumbbells on the walls and Hell like yeah. people just eat, people just eat red meat uncooked. And I don't know, like there are tires everywhere. I don't know. It's a boxing <laughs> ring with three kangaroos at all times. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. I was just gonna say there's that one line where they're just like, how about we design it this way and he was like that's awful when if if you design it like this all the pipes will freeze in the winter this is a disgrace and i was just like man i think this is a big deal but i can't tell i honestly i don't know <laughs> well it's all because of their characters who are just exposition lines they don't really matter yeah and they're hiding their motives and everything because like the one guy who owns the company it turns out that like he had like a past with like gambling and he like he sold off like how property to like some fake company that doesn't exist and uh it's a real snooze fest if you ask me because i didn't find it was a just... snooze but like it is I, I i agree with you that like asking you to care about this guy's perspective and making him such a thin character it's like such a huge ask to ask him to, to, to sympathize with that guy who's kicking people out of their homes and it's also like even more annoying that like he's not interested as a character they don't make that hard no. perspective interesting um, I mean, at least Judy Davis, it would be like, I completely believe that your entire character would be about saving these people and making sure they don't go homeless. That makes sense to me. This fucking rich, privileged guy, just like just having My no interior life whatsoever. as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and the movie trying to like bring the similarities between them is like where people are mad at Judy Davis because one of the people who, um, who won't like back down from like, uh, being kicked out of his house uh he ends up getting killed in a house fire someone like torches his house and the daughter of him gets mad at judy davis blaming him for killing her dad because i guess like it was like her you know political activism that like you know yeah, but she's but she's not a character either no, no. <laughs> and what i was gonna say too is that like you know uh people are also mad at uh richard Boyer because you know he's like doing the project is kicking people out of their homes. People are right to be mad at him and everything. It's like, they talk about like, they both feel like they're being blamed. And then he says something like, well, I guess they both are a little bit right. I'm like, no, it's your fault. You're building these, this project that's kicking people out of their homes. It's your fault. Davis wants to live here. Like it's imagine a film noir where it's from like a, a film noir with the Mr. Potter character from it's a wonderful life. Like, like yeah. you know, like, well, no, the, like, the better version of this movie is just dirty work. It's just yeah. <laughs> now I would now if you put Norm Macdonald in this movie and had them scaring all the people out of build tearing these homes that that would be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> if Shooter Smells McGavin like was trying to yeah, if Shooter McGavin was trying to tear down a high rise so that he could put up a uh, parking lot for an opera house or whatever it is, yeah, it'd be a lot better. But not everybody yeah. can be dirty work, unfortunately. I, or if he just, yeah, or if this guy just went total transformation into domestic terrorist, that would have been interesting to me. Which, like, interesting we keep mentioning that, because I know that movie um, that Noyce directed years later, um, Catch a Fire, which I believe is set in, like, apartheid era, like, South Africa, is about a guy who, like, gets, like, sort of into, like, domestic terrorism, where he's, like, blowing up, like, uh, oil plants or something. I might be wrong. I, I need to see that movie. <laughs> but, uh, that movie barely existed when it came out i remember like that movie made no impact i've whatsoever. heard it's i've heard mixed things but still it it does feel like somewhat daring for a, a major movie because that movie was focused features and or anything like taking a perspective where it's like actually like having you sympathize with domestic terrorists and everything i still feel like that is like a daring perspective for a movie to take even nowadays like and like having you sympathize now like, um, yeah in apartheid south africa it sounds like yeah yeah it's easy to sympathize with 
the guys in that uh, were, scenario. Were people, uh, God, this makes it sound like I'm being such a snob with like, but was that like, <laughs> was that more apparent in Australia for them to just be like, we empathize with the, the movie. I know the movie's not doing that, but it's just, it's just a, such a big ask. And you're like, here's your central focus. Cool. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> no complexity, no nothing. I, yeah, just ugh. yeah. Just, I don't know. And also, might just be my the mood that I'm in right now. Just it's just not anything that I was particularly wanting to even think about right now. <laughs> what if Philip Noyce directed Dirty Work, and what if Bob Saget directed Heat Wave? That's what I've been wondering. Plot. Let's get into the plot. So Richard Moyer is like the the sort of lead architect on this project, where they're going to be like building. Uh, sort of like new high rise, new slicker high rises in uh, Kings Cross. I think is like the neighborhood in um in Australia in Australia where the movie's set. And uh, the tenants are fighting back by like squatting in their homes and like refusing to leave. The movie opens where a group of guys like uh, like heavies are just like recruited, I guess, to break down the place uh, with sledgehammers uh, and like bust in. Uh, and it's it it, it doesn't uh, go very well. Then uh, Richard Moore starts, like, showing up at meetings where Judy Davis is sort of, like, one of the leading activists uh, trying to, like, fight for people to stay in their homes. There's, like, talk of, like, maybe they'll, like, compromise uh, so that, like, you know, Richard Moore's side could get stuff done and Judy Davis's side could get stuff done. One of the – and, like, stuff starts coming about the project that's, like, not great and everything where um, one of the, the guys who, like, owns the company, who I believe is played by Chris Haywood, uh, Houseman, I think is his name, he, like – it's, it turns out that like he's like paying people to like vote for vote for things that will help his son. The, the, a large part of Moore's arc in the movie is realizing the people he works for are surprise surprise corrupt. Um, you know, uh, he um, finds out that like his buddy you know came from nothing and like you know sort of like he sort of I mean it's like I, it, it's made a point uh, that uh, Moore's character like went to study in America and maybe that's why maybe took some of their values up of like sort of the idea of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like being a self made man and like you know making money on your own. Uh, that's sort of how he views uh, his buddy Houseman, his his sort of origin story. But it turns out he's doing shady stuff like, you know, buying up church properties and selling them to a company that has no record of existing. There's also um, uh, this uh, other businessman who, just judging by his accent, it sounds like he's from, uh, he's from South Africa. It's possible that he's just like, you know, got maybe a different Australian dialect. But he's like talking about like how he wants to like get into like get into business with more by helping him uh, set up some entertainment clubs in Australia and one of the dancers who works for this uh, this businessman, uh, she is the daughter of one of the tenants who refuses to leave his house because he's very prideful about owning his own place. Taylor is that character's last name. Uh, I don't remember his first name. Uh, but he ends up dying when uh, a bunch of the houses are are burned up in an act of arson. He dies. The daughter of that guy of Taylor, uh, she is she's one of the dancers at the club, and also one of the key figures in this movie. Uh, Plot wise, is a is a reporter who is uh, writing a lot of the articles that are kind of uh, slamming uh, the architects uh, and like people who are behind this uh, this uh, housing project that is like pushing people out of their homes. Uh, her name is Mary, I believe. She goes missing early on in the movie and is never seen again. It's implied that like you know something really bad to happen to her, but like Davis wants to find out what what did happen. As she and Moyer inexplicably grow closer, I guess because of like, you know, she's already disillusioned with how the system works and he becomes disillusioned with how the system that he's part of works, uh, they end up sleeping together. <laughs> it, it's a thing that you see coming like a mile away because they, they keep having like these sort of like sm- smirking looks at each other in like, you know, shot reverse shot between them and it. But it's like, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, oh gosh, this is, this is a good Also for a movie work. called 
Yeah. Also, for a movie called Heat Wave, you'd at least expect the heat of the movie to actually like provide some sort of tension or like, I don't know. Like, I'm not saying the movie needs to be body heat or anything like that, but it's just like they make such a big point about how, you know, the weather is supposed to, you know, be allegorical to everything heating up in the plot. And it's just like the sex scene is just like so... It's like an afterthought. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really is like, well, I guess we have to do this. The the, the one thing, other thing that I will say, I mean, Judy Davis, obviously the best performance in the movie, but like the camera loves her and she is striking in this movie, Uh, you know. So you'd think that like they'd at least make her character like, you know, not just, you know, strong in terms of like, you know, her political beliefs and uh, morale, but like also someone who's, you know, confident in them and, and, you know, in themselves physically and sexually. And the movie doesn't take that into consideration at all either. It just seems like a pure contrivance on her part. And also sells her character short of just like, why are you with this fucking guy? Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't know. And why is he with her? Like, it doesn't like, it doesn't make sense for either of them. The move also speaking of contrivances, there's a point where when she invites him back to her place, she says like, ah, forgot to lock this door or whatever. I'm like, that's going to factor in later. And it does because someone breaks into her house uh, because they're at open door. Uh, Sorry. That, 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 that is like actually like an upsetting scene of violence that happens there. So like it is like, but it is like the kind of movie where, it's like you can see some of these like things coming a mile away and it doesn't make it more convincing it's just like one of the like you know with the romance where it's like you know that's gonna happen even though like it you'd doesn't also seem think that yeah. based on what she's involved in she would lock her fucking door <laughs> like, like you know like I mean, she's involved in like people losing their houses and she keeps forgetting to lock her door like, i mean I, I, I yes and to be clear i am sympathetic to her character no matter what and everything because you know, oh, i'm sympathetic stuff. to her character yes. either i just think that's bad writing on yes. like why would this person who is so involved in keeping making sure people don't get kicked out of their houses keep forgetting to lock her fucking door yeah maybe she's like it doesn't distracted. make any sense i mean she does like have like a lot of scenes where yeah, she does she's look distracted kind of a lot because yeah. it happens as you said more than once like <laughs> the other thing too that i should i mean yes and she is she's also getting threats throughout the movie uh like i think because like there's the scene where she gets a delivery at her house uh with the flowers and she has that kind of weird tension that sort of weird vibe with the scene where the guy's being kind of flirty with her and she seems kind of into it and everything but then she opens it she looks uh, upset by like you know covering her mouth and everything it's like funeral flowers it looks like right like it has her name her name on the flowers it like says like you know uh kate whatever like rmn or something like that and i was thinking like is it like a funeral arrangement as like saying like you're gonna fucking die if you keep talking about this like i don't that's how i read it in the scene but like maybe i misunderstood i mean every every moment of this movie and especially in terms of plot feels like i like that they're not spoon feeding us anything but it also feels like they forgot to explain a why this would happen and b why a character would make a decision this dumb that would allow something like this to happen considering it doesn't correlate with anything they're involved in in terms of what they do and what they politically stand for and in terms of just making common sense of like if i'm involved in this social movement and also getting death threats i will leave my house door unlocked all the time like like come on guys i i don't know yeah yeah and the movie is like it makes them like pretty interest i mean direction wise it makes some interesting choices i like that like the early on you get that shot of um kind of like the 360 move around the camera of this the the cramped space where all the squatters are and they're like passing around tea and snacks and like you know having like a real sense of 
community with each other and you get that same shot of um it's uh richard boyer's family christmas where everyone's like passing around gifts and giving smooches and it like it lands on him and he just looks absolutely miserable just sort of like the contrast i I like sort of that camera move like repeating itself to show like oh there is like a real sense of love in like this uh, this community of squatters and everything and then like there's just not it seems like really phony uh with like this upper crust society that richard boyer is a part of but the movie but that's also like the fifth or sixth scene where it's like more of like making it being in like a really fancy room and like hearing about like the the stuff that's going on with the squatters to be like ah anyway off to this party i go or whatever it, and, yeah like, it just feels like the same tricks being used over and over again even the same camera movements of you as you said i mean I'll, I'll try to get through the plot uh, in like the next couple of minutes. Um, after Davis and Moyer sleep together, the police show up and uh, they claim to have found uh, bombing devices in Davis's uh, um, drawer. They think that like they're it seems like they're trying to pin the arson on her. You don't believe it, it's not supposed to be her that, that did. No, it. You, you um, don't, yeah. And then, they also uh, have her hand, their hands on her immediately, even though she's only from what we've seen open the front door <laughs> like like she doesn't seem like she's like get the fuck out of my house she's just like uh why are you here and then all of a sudden it's just them leading her into the living room and they've got both cops have an arm around her wrist or arm and i'm just like not not unbelievable especially knowing what we know about the police but like yeah. just immediately like uh, this is already just it, it felt weirdly blocked and staged to me where I was just like, because then she kind of slips her arms out of it. And I'm like, uh, wh- what? Well, because like, she's like I, telling I like she says, like, I know my rights. Like, you can't do this to me. And like she's saying yeah. that to, to Moyer as well, because he seems really but it's all awkward. Well. It's all awkward and stilted at the same time where I'm like, what what is this going for? Again, for a movie called Heat Wave, it's like nothing dramatically heats up yeah. until the last 15 minutes. And um, it's, like, also, like, the same group of cops who I feel like you keep seeing throughout the movie. Like, they're the cops who are, like, not really doing anything when, like, they're getting information about the disappearance of the journalist. Uh, well, there's only two or three cops in the whole continent of Australia. We all know that. <laughs> uh, they put all the money into this development project. They only could pay these three cops. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Just imagining Chief Wiggum just being like, look, we are very, very busy right now. <laughs> <laughs> me to like a bear or something it's like the cops in relentless where it's like saying hey this guy's trying to kill me it's like well if he goes if he calls if he does something again we'll do something this is like i know we're only like what like eight movies into our new line cinema but these already have the worst cops we've ever covered right like in the 80s they couldn't give a fuck less yeah um and after so moyer nothing really happens to him in prison because he has connections and everything but his uh it's the lawyer Philip, I believe, is his, if his is his name. He tells him like, "Hey, you're gonna want to maybe sever your connections with like Davis because like it's like it's gonna be bad like PR for our whole like housing thing, especially because like you know money is like kind of precarious right now with like like all the delays that are happening because like there's all these like const- like construction bans that are happening and everything where like there's all this like all these problems with the unions so that like they can't actually start construction but money is like you know just like leaking from the project like the whole time and then he goes home to his wife who knows that he was like fucking around with davis and eventually she leaves him then a lot of shit happens in the last 10 minutes that i couldn't even fucking keep track of what well, i was just like the big <laughs> yeah. things to remember are when moyer goes to talk to the the dancer at the club 
She refuses to give give information, and the bouncers beat the shit out of Moyer outside the club. Beat the fuck out. Yeah, yeah. In in a way where I'm just like, Jesus, what happened off camera that we didn't see? She literally says, "Get him out of here," and they were just like, "Oh hell yeah!" (laughs) Yeah, but then it's like, it's like, yeah, they didn't just throw him out. They like had a fucking field day. Well, I think it's because he's asking questions and like they don't want answers uh they don't want to yeah. have the answers dug up but the movie's not even clear about that like it just kind of cuts from a to b and you're like oh okay yeah yes davis ends up sneaking into like the company where all the where the project is is being built and she like breaks into um houseman's office and searches for files and he comes in from like what looks like a tennis game or whatever and he's like been seen arguing with this lawyer throughout the whole movie so like he's clearly up to something he like slaps her and she slaps him back and then like she's thrown out and then, like, two scenes later, when Moyer goes to the office, it's, like, the, like the receptionists are, like, packing up stuff and just saying, like, yeah, Houseman's gone. Like, he's just, like, the, the company's no more, and I also can't tell you anything. And then, like, there is, like, actually, like, a really good scene where, like, Houseman is, like, packing up his entire house and, like, his daughter's, like, doing a dance and everything. But then, like, something, someone, like, knocks somebody over in the background and, like, everyone screams and, like, his guards, like, break out guns. Like, they're thinking that something that bad is going to happen. And then, like... He flees the country. The lawyer, Philip, ends up, like, brutally murdered, like, off screen. Like, he ends up, like, they find, they go to his house and, like, there's, like, a, a scene where, like, he just ends up, like, dead or whatever uh, because, like, he's into some shady stuff. Yeah, splattered with blood. I couldn't even tell what they did to him except there was blood everywhere all over his body, all over the floor. Yeah, like, and, like, it's, like, written in blood, I think, on the wall, like, arsehole. Um and um, which didn't 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 she write at one point in the beginning didn't judy davis write arsehole on the window with something there is like some yeah i should have taken the note about um, a graffiti so is that supposed to be like a red herring for it might be her or something but then they drop that they don't really put any emphasis on when she does it like on the window when they're at the architectures i mean there's no emphasis on anything in this movie well (laughs) that's kind of the thing (laughs) yeah and then like she uh, she gets a call from the reporter who's been interacting with moyer throughout the whole movie they think that they found mary uh in the water and uh then they turn her over and uh they say it's not mary and then like uh the reporter, like, says, like, oh, I bet you feel a little bit of relief now, right? And then she slap- goes nuts and slaps him and, like, gets really upset at him and Moyer saying, you don't actually care about her or anything. You just, like, you just care about money. And then she runs off. When she goes back to her house, like, uh, she's been trying to rally the community to still keep up morale. But I guess just after all this, like, horrible stuff has happened, a lot of people are just kind of resigned to it. Like, look, I'm just going to move somewhere else. It's going to be easier. It's okay. And, like, there are some people who, like, just refuse to talk to her. Eventually, when she goes back to her house, like, near the end of the movie, uh, she, there's, like, a, you know, a shop, and you know something bad's gonna happen, because she turns, tries to turn on the lights, and the power's not working, and then, like, there's a shot where she's, like, in the kitchen, fiddling with the door, and you see a figure in the background, he approaches, and, like, you know, attacks her, and, like, there's a struggle where she's being really roughed up, and then he says, like, uh, and, like, he threatens, like, to hurt her again if she like keeps asking questions and you only really see like part of his face when like he lights up a cigarette like while like always doing he has like a big mustache and then um she gets her gun and she almost shoots richard boyer when he shows up uh but then like she just goes out into the street and there is a really legit i would say a genuinely tense scene where like the camera's like racing behind them to keep up with them as like moyer is chasing davis through like this really crowded streets uh, as people are celebrating new year's eve and there's fires going off and people are screeching and like people's faces are like getting really close to the camera and like they're laughing so like they look really maniacal um and they end up at this club 
where um, you see the name of like the fake company that you've been hearing talk about in relation to Houseman, and the person at the head of the table is um, is the entertainment businessman who owns like the strip club, who's like linked up with uh, the Taylor girl. Davis, uh, she sees the the guy who like roughed her up, and she approaches with a gun. And then, but instead of the foreground, the person who steps forward is uh, the Taylor girl, who is like the dancer, and she shoots the entertainment businessman. He falls dead into the cake, spurting blood, which I think is a very striking image. And then she gets shot by the bodyguard who was roughing up uh, Judy Davis. And everyone like just like looks at the dead body, and Davis like turns back, like covered in blood, and then just sort of like stumbles out in a daze. Moyer is just like sort of standing there. Also dazed, uh, which is how he looks for <laughs> much of the movie. He's just a witness. He's literally just our cipher for the rest of the movie, which I'm not saying you can't do that. Plenty of great movies have done that. But it, it's like it, he's barely involved in anything that's just happening at this point for like what feels like such a... Well, the point that you made about how it's difficult to tell some of these characters apart, I was really confused in this club scene because at one point when like Moore's like sort of scanned the club for a familiar face, Davis's specifically, he turns and locks eyes with... Uh, with this mustachioed man who looks a lot like the reporter who he's been talking to, who's been giving him intel on like his friend's schemes, but he's talking to the cops who seems to be kind of who you've been seeing throughout the movie, who also seem very corrupt. And the guy like just says like, well, how's it going? Like, you know, to Richard Moore. And it's like, it's like such a quick, darkly lit shot that I was like thinking I, I and I, I, I felt bad. I couldn't tell if it was like, a, it was the same character we've been seeing. And it just turns out like he, he's, you know, also corrupt. He's not actually like a, a, a good reporter like we thought, or if it was just some guy who happened to look very similar. It, the movie doesn't I, I convey it clearly enough. Um, I don't think you should feel bad because I was just all, I was also confused, and ultimately I think that just has to do with bad cinematic storytelling and emphasizing who who's important and why and what. And again, noir films. This is kind of turning into a noir film, especially at the end. But like, if you can't, like, it, it, it you know. I I didn't feel anything watching this. I didn't feel any of the ethical or sociological or you know uh, moral weight of any of this at, at the end. It's just sort of oh okay, this is how it plays out, and I, I I don't know. I feel like you at least get a sense of like sadness and melancholy and just the the, the you get the sense that everything is corrupt, but I don't really get any sense of of pathos from any of the filmmaking on display here because and again like like you mentioned there's some camera tricks here but he's used the same camera tricks the same like it, it, it kind of felt like you know two or three special grab bag tricks that he was just using again and by the time you've seen enough of these people like enough dead bodies with this amount of blood and these types of shutterstock slowing down moments it's like i i don't know i don't think noise i i am no noise expert but it just didn't feel like he's enough of a stylist to pull this off in a way that felt impactful to me i will agree with you though i'm glad you highlighted the score i do like the the sort of uh very sparse sort of like or not sparse uh, but like sort of the the very uh atonal like sort of echoey guitar riff that plays over the last scene and continues into the end credits as it reveals that like when you go sort of as a camera like tr- zooms along like uh, whooshes along like the sort of muddy construction ground that's just like now been condemned or whatever and like uh bubbling up to the grate is uh what looks like the dead body of the journalist and everything it is like like i said it mood wise it's very eerie uh but like again like because like the 
characters. I mean, I, look, I don't want to sound like, oh, I don't care about this dead person or anything, but the movie, uh, I would say, with, like a lot of the characters that you're seeing she, in the closing scenes, it doesn't really have a lot of weight because, like, again, like, she, they're not. She's just like the symbol. Yeah, yeah, no, they don't feel like people at all. Mm-hmm. No, that, I, I completely agree with you. It's sad I'm, because of like the circumstances. You wish you knew the character. Yeah, yeah. Even in noir films where a certain person goes missing, they will at least even the characters interacting with one another when that character is off screen will give you a certain sense of who this person was. Or usually it's men talking about a specific woman in a lot of cases where by the end they don't really know who this poor soul was that was kind of eaten alive by a system of some kind. And you get that sense of like no one cared and no one even truly understood who she was. This movie is supposed to be like this person was a fucking saint political hero and like you don't even get the sense that the movie really cares about her so much as what she represented as opposed to her being a human being or her sense of humanity in any way. Yeah, and again, that if the movie had a little bit more on its mind, maybe that could be because I feel like that's interesting. That's like an interesting idea. But like, you know, do you care about this person as a person or what it means for like a political cause and everything like that's that's or even getting at the yeah, yeah, or even getting at the emptiness of of the way that men possess women and objectify women. There's not even any of that. It's just sort of like in the middle of everything, you know. People always talking about like how, you, you know, a lot of Judy Davis being like, you don't even care about her. And I'm like, well, the movie doesn't care about making her like yes. a human being at all. At least, you know, in most good noirs, even if you understand that all of these things that people have been saying about these this person have been misconceptions, it can at least go to the emptiness of how people view certain people in as objects or or uh, a, a gain for political or financial means for their own greed and then you're kind of left with the emptiness of this lost life no you get no, you get none of that here you get none of like even what she meant for these people other than people being like she was so great you know like it's just yeah. you can't really just expect people saying those words over and over again and to do the work for you, you know, especially if it's based on a true person, you'd expect there to put a little more work in. I don't know. I also, all your points are great. I also completely forgot until now what the name of the product is. Eden. Boy, they keep making a point Boy, of that. Boy, do like, they, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I rolled my eyes every single time they said that. Like, Eden, Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> there was a point where I was thinking about the mo- the Lars von Trier movie Antichrist and how Charlotte Gainsbourg te- keeps talking about how she's terrified of Eden, but Eden's supposed to be like the woods or something. And I'm just like, <laughs> like just imagining like <laughs> this fucking building that they're in. like, I don't want them to build that in Australia. <laughs> like, I don't know. My brain's so broken. There's also that movie Eden, which is all about like house music, right? Imagine if it was like, I'm scared right. of Eden. Yeah, it's just like, movie. Daft Punk. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah that's me and Hank. That's a Mia Hansen love joint. I need yep. to see it. It sounds good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's just yeah, just I mean that that it's so heavy handed to even just call it that and like him just. He, I also I it's almost a parody at one point where like the wife's reading off like the letter as you mentioned Bryden and then being like I'm not part of your passion and it's him just looking at all these outlines he's drawn up this fucking building <laughs> so like, the table. who the fuck cares and it's just like and those drawings look like shit like <laughs> it doesn't even look like a place you'd want to go to it's like ugh, like and it's again it's a lot of people just talking about no no this will be important and stuff like that but the other thing is like film noir there's usually a sense of like even amidst like big cities and um 
you know, the skyscrapers and all that. There's a place, there's a sense of setting here, the, which for a movie called Heat Wave, where it is supposed to be this hot, sweaty, you know, time of, and, and, and set in Christmas and all that stuff. Usually it's just like you get a sense of like a, a, a certain setting, either suffocating people or swallowing them alive in some case. And for a film about architecture, you don't really get any sense of like what. Like, like, I don't know, maybe did either of you feel like you got a good sense of setting or what this place is like or anything like that? A, a city of lost souls, you know, like or miss people floundering to stay alive. I, I didn't I, I didn't feel like this thing had any sense of even conveying within a visual sense, even through blocking or backgrounds or extras or anything like that, that like it just seemed very matter of fact, like they will just be in this room. Or they will just be on the street. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, no real sense of like where the, the how they're invite, how they are a product of their environment and how their environment shapes them in any way. And why this is so vital for people to believe that this new project will make this certain environment thrive or whether or, or just how detrimental it will be to the people who will suffer as a result of it. It's basically just uh, you don't want them to go homeless. It's like, no, absolutely not. But we also don't know anything about the film. I don't think does a good job of laying out any sort of mise en scene if I'm going to get extremely pretentious here. Oh, so. no, 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 that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, I'm, by the way, I am sitting in a bathtub with flippers on <laughs> and a yellow rain jacket. <laughs> um, yeah. The one detail I will say, but the heat that it, that is sticking out to me is like, even in the scenes where people are like wearing ties and like, you know, looking very professional and everything they're still got like sweat stains underneath like their armpits and anything and that's just like the kind of thing where like i'd be like so stressed out like i'd be like like oh fuck i look like an idiot <laughs> yeah oh god yeah. i know i want to see noise's other movies especially like his political movies like catch a fire newest run as we've talked about they sound like interesting maybe they do a better job of like uh having you care about the characters as well as like uh outlining the political points that they're that they're fighting for i'm not in a rush <laughs> I'm Dead Calm, I think you would me. like that. Is just like a straight up thriller. Right? I think uh, Dead Calm, even the even the trashy ones like Sliver and Bone Collector, which I meant to catch up with for research, but we're recording this in December and I, there's a lot going on right now, so I I just let this kind of slip, um, and that's on me. I I don't I I don't know. Like I was hoping because you know Salt and the Giver are 2010s picks where I'm just like, well he probably lost it maybe this will give me a better sense of who he is and like i mean it's a definitely a different type of filmmaking and i'm not saying it's not it's not a subject that i find to be uninteresting in any way i just found every way this film goes about handling it and exploring it to be incredibly by the numbers kind of stale whatever kind of totally rudimentary filmmaking yeah yeah kevin <laughs> no I will be watching The Desperate Hour as soon as we get off this call, though. <laughs> I gotta do it. Let me know how that is. That'll be our, uh... uh <laughs> that'll be our intermission. <laughs> if we did, like, a Patreon, just, like, talk about the movies of, like, directors we've covered, it's, it'd be like, Desperate Hour. What do we think, folks? Bad. <laughs> Alright, thanks for listening to Almost Major Patreon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
thanks for subscribing to our twenty-five dollar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> get this. Yeah, only thirty seconds, but ooh, those seconds are worth it. <laughs> oh shit! I I watched Run Hide Fight or whatever that movie's called. I thought I thought that's what y'all were covering. No, oh, no, I'm fuck. sorry. I heard that was bad. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Almost Major. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please follow the pod on Twitter at Almost Major to keep up to date with what movies we will be covering in the future. Myself, I can be found on Twitter and Letterboxd at Kev Bonesy. Bryden can be found on Twitter at Bryden Doyle and on Letterboxd at J Doyle. Charlie can be found on Twitter and Letterboxd at CTNash91. Once again, thank you for listening.